Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, that's FP's economics podcast. Every week, we take a couple of data points and use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you from Berlin, Germany. Uh, as always, Adam Twos uh, is with us. He's FP's economics columnist and uh, Columbia University professor. This week, he is not in his normal location in New York. He is on a beach somewhere. I won't be more specific than that, but because he's missing some of his normal equipment, his sound may be a little uh, different than you're normally accustomed to. But hi, Adam. Hi, Ken. Okay, so the second half of the show, uh, the second segment will be tied to spring, which is just now around the corner or maybe has already arrived when you've listened to this. I always like the arrival of spring in Iranian culture, where my parents are from, it's Nowruz, the new year. That struck me as maybe kind of too far afield for a segment on our show, but we will be doing a segment on flowers, which is spring-related. So stick around for that. But first, as always, we're going to be doing something tied to the news, and specifically, the news data point for today is 51.5 million. That is the number of people currently under some form of lockdown in China. That includes 21 million people who live in the northern province of Jilin and 17.5 million in the southern hub of Shenzhen. Shenzhen, where major manufacturers like Foxconn have had to suspend operations. We are continuing to watch stocks higher here. That's not the case in China this morning. A major sell-off there overnight as the major cities bring back harsh lockdown measures to try and combat a COVID outbreak. So, of course, uh, in the West, the U.S. And, and Europe have dealt with various kinds of public health measures that have altered daily life uh, in recent months and years. But China, uh, during that time, had really been benefiting from the effects of zero COVID strategy, basically a nationwide effort to stamp out any trace of the virus and basically then to let life go on uninterrupted. But now the fast-spreading Omicron variant has arrived in China and zero COVID seems to be having trouble keeping up. So infections nationwide are higher than they've ever been at any other time during the pandemic in China. And the interventions the Chinese government is now reaching for are more severe than any the West has used since the very early days of the pandemic. And of course, the early pandemic was an enormous economic event, and the question now is, will China's lockdowns be a global economic crisis of its own? So, Adam, what kind of lockdowns exactly are we talking about here? I mean, how does the scale and the severity really compare with what we saw at the high point here in the West? And are these kinds of lockdowns necessarily going to cause economic ripple effects for the rest of the world? They're certainly serious lockdowns. Um, they're far more serious than anything we ever saw in the United States. You know, talking about the West in this context, I think, is a little deceptive because speaking as somebody who lived through the pandemic in New York, which was dramatically affected early on, we never experienced a lockdown in either the European or the Chinese sense. 
and it was largely enforced by social conformism rather than any kind of actual coercive measures. Um, I would say what we're looking at in China is probably comparable to what Europe has repeatedly used since the spring of 2020. It involves the closure of major factories, the closure of public facilities, the maintenance only of essential services. But I don't think it's going to be quite as draconian as the measures that China itself imposed in Wuhan in February 2020 to stem the original onset of the disease. Um, these lockdowns matter as much as they do because of where they're happening. And uh, in the first epidemic in, in, in China in 2020, the, the center was Wuhan, which is a major production uh, center. It's a major key part of the, the Chinese economy. But Shenzhen and Shanghai are, are potentially now affected. And that really takes us to the heart of China's role in global supply chains. I mean, we've already seen closure announcements by the likes of Foxconn, who uh, Apple's key supplier of iPhones. Major touchscreen manufacturers have shut down. Um, this is really going to impact global supply chains if it extends much beyond a week. And if the experience of China in the spring of 2020 is anything to go by, unboggling the resulting um, mess in global supply chains could take months. So I'd like to try to understand how this uh, is happening in China right now. I mean, we are two years into this pandemic. I mentioned the zero COVID strategy. I mean, is this kind of strategy, is this kind of approach just incoherent in the long term? I mean, absent the kind of a vaccination campaign that is effective. I mean, did the Chinese government just not understand this tension? Did they fail to create an effective vaccination campaign? And did they misunderstand this tension or did they think that zero COVID was going to work as a way of riding out the pandemic? Well, I think the first thing to say is that zero COVID should have been all our aims. Um, you know, and it's a signal failure of the rest of the world not to have responded to the pandemic that way. Ch China's problem is that it's trying to pursue a zero COVID policy in one country. And it's a big country with tight border controls, but nevertheless, it's really hard to make that work when the rest of the world has basically gone for some sort of half-cock combination of herd immunity and you know, high-quality vaccination. But we, we shouldn't forget that as recently as January this year, that's only weeks ago now, 2,000 people were dying a day in the United States of this disease. So China's problem is really the fact that the rest of the world totally failed to uh, get to grips with this, uh, with this disease and ultimately resorted to vaccination. Um, and I think that's why the, the questions really at this point have got to be about uh, China's vaccination program, because, you know, to have deliberately allowed an incursion of a disease which the Chinese had themselves gotten under control would obviously not in any way have been a justifiable policy. They did exactly what needed to have been done. But the questions, I think, have to be asked about the vaccine program. Okay, so let's turn to that Chinese vaccination program. I mean, why has it run into difficulties? Have Chinese authorities just not invested enough resources into distributing a vaccine? Or have they not relied on, on the more effective vaccines that have been produced in the West? And why wouldn't they have sort of more turned to those effective Western vaccines versus the, the sort of homegrown ones? Is that just a kind of aspect of national pride getting in the way of that kind of vaccination campaign? Yeah, I think there are three issues here. But again, first of all, we have to, you know, we have to apply a corrective. I mean, China managed to vaccinate a billion people by September 2021. Currently, it's vaccine, it's distributed three billion doses of vaccine. So it, it's mounted the largest vaccine effort in the world. Uh, the, the questions that have to be asked are about the choice of vaccines, the efficacy of the vaccines they've used, 
uh, and their distribution. Um, the Chinese homegrown vaccines are, as we know, much less effective in stopping infection, especially from Omicron. They appear to protect against hospitalization and death, but not against transmission. And if you have a population which is only partially vaccinated and immunonaive in the sense it's not been exposed to COVID because of the success of the first round, that's a really critical flaw. Uh, China does have uh, mRNA programs uh, of its own. Um, it has been promising breakthroughs in this area since 2021, but I think it's hard to avoid the impression that they want to really resist the importation of Western vaccines. BioNTech, the, um, the German company, which is really Pfizer's technology partner in developing the world-beating Pfizer vaccine, has a Chinese partner, but they've been waiting for months now to have their vaccine licensed. China is therefore, I think, culpable in the sense that it has not done everything it possibly could to access mRNA technology. The other thing to say, though, and this is in a sense the most dangerous aspect of the situation, is that China has signally failed to vaccinate its older and more vulnerable population. And the numbers here are really, are really quite staggering. 40% um, uh, of the population in China over the age of 80 has not been vaccinated. In Hong Kong, it's almost 70% of uh, elderly citizens have not been vaccinated, whereas, of course, the priority should have been precisely to provide them uh, with the vaccines that are necessary. Having said all that, if China had turned to the global market for Western mRNA vaccines last year, it would, of course, run, have run into a brick wall because they were, as we all know, uh, fully ordered by Western uh, high-income countries. Um, many campaigners are hoping, literally in these months now, that the production bottlenecks for Pfizer and Moderna vaccines will finally have been broken and we, the world will be awash with um, mRNA vaccines. We imagined, of course, that those would be deployed as a top priority, especially to low-income countries, notably in Africa, where vaccination has not really extended so far. It could be that those reserves of production capacity provide the solution to protect enough of the Chinese population quickly enough. But that would require Beijing jumping over its own shadow. So these lockdowns are unprecedented in China, at least on this scale. How is the Chinese government managing this as an economic issue right now? Are they combining these lockdowns with the kinds of economic aid measures that we saw to some extent in the West? I mean, is there income assistance to people who can't work? Are there bailouts to businesses, those kinds of things? And if not, I mean, how precarious is the Chinese economy at this moment? It's in a pretty precarious situation, and it's very fast moving as well. I mean, the Omicron crisis has blown up on them quickly. Last year, on the back of their success in managing the first two waves of COVID, they set about really major structural reform. <laughs> Xi Jinping announced this new agenda of common prosperity as the goal of his regime. They quite deliberately triggered crises, both in the real estate sector and the tech sector, with massive new regulatory measures for the tech sector and the deflation of the huge bubble in housing credit. So that, as it were, was their priority for economic policy. They set a more modest growth objective of just over 5%, and then have walked into this Omicron crisis, which um, is really uh, putting in jeopardy the, you know, the key centers of production in the south of China. And we've seen a collapse in financial markets unfolding now in China at extraordinary speed. Um, earlier this week, an absolutely massive sell-off in the Shanghai stock market. For months now, the debt of real estate companies has been you know, in the basement, uh, downgraded to junk, if that. Um, it's an extremely volatile situation, and I would expect over the next couple of months that we would see 
uh, Beijing rolling out a variety of different responses that could be in part uh, various types of infrastructure spending. And they have not so far shown themselves very adept at the providing support immediately to households um, in the form of the kind of furlough payments or stimulus checks that the United States and Europe provided. So this, again, will be a very major test of the regime. That is not, generally speaking, how economic policy in China works. It's rather, given that this is still a country, as it were, ruled by a communist party, it's rather um, withholding, it's rather slow to actually deliver welfare payments directly to the population. And um, if, this, if this crisis marked a break in that pattern, then I think we'd have to say that the common prosperity agenda was really developing, you know, real heft and real substance. Okay, I mean, I guess as a, a final question, I want to return to the start where you talked about how the real economic problems that will be caused for the rest of the world here, at least immediately, will, will be uh, as a result of the supply chains that are really so reliant on these parts of China affected by the lockdown, specifically Shenzhen as a tech hub in the South. I guess this got me wondering whether as a result of this pandemic more generally, crises like this, now also the war in, in Ukraine, we've just seen a lot of interruption of supply chains. And I'm just curious whether you think, Adam, that economic actors have learned that we need more redundancies in our global supply chains. I mean, for economic reasons, not just for political reasons. I mean, I know there's this political conversation about, you know, we need to roll back parts of globalization as a counter to authoritarian countries. But I don't know, are we just learning that economic globalization on its own terms isn't sustainable in some way? I mean, it's just not resistant enough to crises like this. I mean, that narrative is certainly buzzing around. I have to say, I personally don't find it terribly convincing. Um, after all, we, you know, we had the, the mother, the daddy, the granddaddy, the grandmother of all shocks you know, in, with COVID in 2020. We've never seen anything like it. And what happened to world trade? It, it bounced back. Um, I don't think we are going to get massively redundant supply chains for chips or smartphones or cars because it, it's simply too expensive to keep that kind of reserve capacity um, in the system. And what we are likely to get is a series of boom-bust cycles provoked by the shortages. When we say we're dealing with a supply chain crisis, I mean, whose crisis is it? I mean, it's certainly a problem for the consumers, but you have to ask yourself, after all, are the companies involved really losing profit as a result of this? At that point, it becomes serious and people have to change their business models. So I think there's going to be an adjustment. It will be driven, however, by the calculus of profit and loss. I don't think it's going to be driven by geopolitics. The Biden administration's efforts so far to produce uncoupling from China have been signally unsuccessful. And they're not really getting buy-in either from American businesses or America's security policy partners in the rest of Asia, who just simply have too much to lose in their economic connections with China. Okay, well, I guess in the short term, we will see if there are interruptions in our tech stores here in the West. But yeah, maybe longer term, this won't be much of an issue. But we will leave it there for now and come back to talk about flowers. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, 
not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Welcome back. Uh, as I mentioned, we're doing a segment tied to the start of spring, and the data point here is $8.5 billion. That is the size of the annual global flower trade, specifically for cut flowers, to be exact. You know, the kinds of decorative and quickly perishable flowers that you might see at your local florist or supermarket, especially now that, that spring is starting. Okay, Adam. I know from my own history, classes back in high school even, that there was an enormous bubble in tulip prices in the early modern Netherlands. But that got me wondering about the Netherlands today. Uh, are the Dutch still a powerhouse in the flower industry? Yeah, they absolutely are, both as a grower and as the central market maker and marketplace for the giant European flower market. And there is this one location, the Arlesmeer uh, flower market, which handles a staggering 43 million cut flowers per day. I mean, just imagine the scent in that, in that building. It is a single building. It's one of the largest buildings in the world, the, the Arlesmeer flower market warehouse. It's 518,000 square meters large. It's 128 <laughs> acres of air-conditioned space. And flowers from all over the world uh, flow into there from across Europe, Israel, Ecuador, Colombia, Ethiopia, Kenya. And then they're distributed from there to the rest of Europe. It's a huge daily logistical operation with trucks flowing out of the Netherlands overnight and then back in the early morning. It used, in fact, to be a well-known hitchhiking trick in West Berlin. So you would just show up at 5 or 6 a.m. at your local flower shop and ask the driver of the Dutch flower truck, which inevitably showed up there every single day, which route he was taking back to the Netherlands. And then you would jump off at whatever autobahn intersection you needed to go north or south when you got to West Germany. Um, I personally preferred the gas stations just before you crossed into East Berlin. But my landlady uh, at the time in, in Berlin, she always used to hitch rides with the flower trucks. Oh, 
I wonder if this would still work. I don't know. I'll have to check it out. But I, I want to understand here. You're saying that all of these flowers from around the world get flown into the Netherlands, and then who decides who gets which flowers? Like, how does this work? There is like bidding for them. I mean, like, what happens in this huge hall exactly? Yeah, it's a, they literally have a Dutch auction. They they go down in price, and um, you know the Dutch have been market makers for all sorts of commodities for centuries. And one of the ones they specialize in is this incredibly perishable product. And for all of Europe, they are the key distribution hub. Wow. Yeah. Um, so you know, flowers in Switzerland will be sold in in the Netherlands. Okay, so you mentioned some of the producers. Obviously, the Netherlands is among the producers, but you mentioned some other ones. I mean, who are the other major global producers of flowers today? It's important here to distinguish between production and trade. So the 8.5 billion figure is for the element of flowers that are traded across borders. And given how perishable they are, obviously quite a lot of floricultural production is in fact local locally grown and locally sold. It, we estimate, I mean, Dutch banks, who are like the leading experts on floriculture and the economies of floriculture, there's a Rabobank, one of the Dutch banks, produces an annual report. They figure that the global market for flowers in all their forms is about $55 billion. And if you add trees and ornamental shrubs, it comes to $35 billion. We could be talking, and these are numbers from a few years mm. ago, we could be talking about a $100 billion market here. Other than the Netherlands, in the global uh, market, the key key players are really um, Colombia and Ecuador uh, that feed the giant U.S. market. And the vast majority of supermarket flowers in the United States come from Colombia and Ecuador. In the United States, doesn't grow many of its own flowers anymore. And in Europe, the major sources of imports are East Africa now, so Kenya and Ethiopia. And in East Africa, it's one of the great success stories. I mean, um, of recent years, the development of East African capitalism is one of the, you know, the, the globalization, the next generation globalization stories. And for Kenya, uh, it's about a billion dollars worth of business. 70% of it goes to Europe by aircraft. The Kenyan Flower Association, which of course is in the business of boosting its importance, but it says that about 100,000 people are employed in flower farms in Kenya, uh, supporting, you know, families running to about 2 million. So it's a very substantial, it's a very substantial export sector. It's also obviously horribly unsustainable because you're, fly, you know, you're flying refrigerated cut flowers mm. uh, thousands of miles. But it is a, it's a great growth market for high value agricultural development, both in Latin America, increasingly also in Central America. There's some new suppliers out of Central America and uh, East Africa. Okay, so those are the producers. Uh, what about the consumers? I mean, which, which countries are the major consumers of flowers? And, and do we know what times of year, say, and what occasions lead to the greatest demand for flowers? Yeah, I mean, the overwhelmingly biggest market in the world by single country is the United States. Billions, tens of billions are spent in the United States. But if you've ever actually lived in the United States and Europe, you'll know that Europeans spend far more on flowers than Americans do. And whereas in the US, really cut flowers, uh, you know, are generally bought in supermarkets or in bodegas in a city like New York. In Europe, it's a specialist trade and you'll have florists in, you know, not every street corner exactly, but within easy walking distance of most homes in the European city is a, is a, is a mm. specialist uh, florist. And the Swiss uh, spend about four times per capita on, on flowers what the United States do. So they're reputed to spend the most in the world, about $100, $100 per person per year as opposed to 
dollars per year in, in the United States. Other big markets other than um, Europe and the United States are uh, Japan and Russia is the number four or fifth, depending on whether you count the UK as part of the EU. Um, the buyers are overwhelmingly women, unsurprisingly, perhaps. In the US, about two thirds of the purchases hmm. are made by women. And uh, the, the occasions are also predictable. The two really big flower occasions are Valentine's and Mother's Day. And in the US, at least, Mother's Day trumps Valentine's Day by a considerable margin. Again, I think the habits in Europe are rather different because, you know, in many European societies, you simply wouldn't show up at somebody's house without flowers. You know, if you go to dinner, you're as likely to bring a bouquet of flowers as you are as you are a bottle of wine or something. And so... Um, it's a very different pattern, whereas in the US, I think it's driven a bubble by these major seasonal festivals. It's interesting. I was going to guess that you were going to mention weddings as a, a major kind of contributor to, to demand for flowers. But is that not like a kind of major measurable uh, kind of kind of event? Yeah, they don't show up in the data so clearly because they, you know, they happen all year long. I mean, funerals as well, after all, a big flower floral occasions. Got it. OK, so... Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, weddings and funerals. Okay, that's flowers is the thing that links them all. But as a final question, I want to return to something I mentioned at the top, which is this tulip bubble that happened in in the Netherlands, basically when the prices of tulips went through the roof hundreds of years ago and then, and then collapsed uh, and led to a kind of financial crisis. I guess I was wondering, is that a sort of pattern in history at all? I mean, are there other flower panics that I might be less familiar with? Or is that really just a one-off? And are there generally still big ties between finance and, and flowers today? I was racking my brains about this. And it's clear the Dutch banks take a serious interest in this billion-dollar industry. I mean, as I said, Rabobank is, a, you know, is the major source of information about the floriculture and its economy. Um, I was. I couldn't think of any other directly flower-related booms. I mean, there have been commodity booms of a similar scale, like you can have a boom-bust cycle, for instance, in rubber or sugar. These were classic commodity boom-bust cycles which reached havoc in places like Cuba, for instance. But I think perhaps it's more interesting to think of the Dutch tulip bubble as a sort of, it's almost a metaphor for, you know, irrational manias per se. It has come, certainly come to serve that way. It has quite an interesting history, in fact, because it's not obvious why we know about it. It was quite an obscure incident that, that took place in the Netherlands between 1634 and February 1637, when prices crashed. I mean, this is the middle, not just of the Thirty Years' War, and the extended religious struggles and the efforts of the Dutch to free themselves from Spanish hegemony, but it's also in the middle of a huge outbreak of the plague in Europe at the time. So these are pretty troubled times, and the fact that we know about this incident where it's estimated that the most insane price for a single tulip bulb, people were paying 10 times the annual income of a skilled artisan. So imagine, I mean, that's, say, if we're saying $70,000, $80,000 a year. We're talking modern money, seven hundred dollars to $800,000 for a single tulip bulb, you know, in societies which are very poor. We think, in a sense, it may, you know, reflect a, a rather, a rather agitated and and, and warped um, perception of the world that that was prevalent in Europe at the time. And this is a period where we're seeing the deaths of ten, twenty, thirty percent of the population in many parts of Europe as a result of the combination of disease and war. And it's rescued from the obscurity of that that that, that historical nightmare by nineteenth-century and then twentieth-century writers the most important of which is a Scottish journalist by the name of Charles Mackay, 
who in his book Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, which was published in 1841 and sort of set off an entire European literature about the madness of crowds and masses, sort of spawned this interest in the mania as a, literally as a metaphor, as an example, a historical precedent for bouts of panic and mania of this type that have occurred ever since. And I think that's maybe the best way to think about the tulip bubble as our collective image of what goes wrong when we lose our grip on reality and lose our grip on the true value of things. Maybe we should do a separate episode in defense of the tulip bubble. I don't know. But yeah, it sounds like yesterday's tulips are today's NFTs. Yes, exactly. I think that's precisely the right kind of analogy, I think. (laughs) Okay, well, we will leave it there for now. I want to make a quick plug here for an event that is happening next week on Tuesday. FP Live is hosting an event with the IMF's two top leaders, Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva and First Deputy Managing Director Gita Gopinath. They'll both be speaking with FP's Editor-in-Chief Ravi Agrawal. If you want to participate in that event, because it will be interactive, you can go to the FP's website and and click on events and there should be more information there. But otherwise, Adam and I will be back next week unless I decide to run off with the local florist in the meantime. But uh, okay, we 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 will leave it there for now. Not the florist, Cameron. It's the truck driver. I'm sorry. I the the florist is more. I'll be is more attractive. I'll be honest. But uh, but but uh, but uh, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> no, no, it's the truck driver. <laughs> you know, Freudian slip. I don't know. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks as always to my co-host Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at ones and twos pod. Remember, that's twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rosprow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.